This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to the podcast. All right, Tom, I think we kind of know where we are today, right? I have. This to is our part two of the Great Depression, right? Yes. We're going to be talking about the going on from the election of 1932 and on, looking at how Roosevelt, FDR, decided to tackle the problem of the Great Depression with his New Deal and all these other programs and how the country eventually got out of the Great Depression. Yep. FDR is definitely one of those you know, most known presidents, I think, in American history. Undoubtedly so, actually. Um, I also think he's like the, when they, like you think of a Democratic Party, whenever you point to, like the Republican Party will always point to Reagan, you know, as like their man. Like a modern Republican, yeah. Yeah, and and I feel like a Democrat will always point to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But what we're going to maybe touch upon a little bit today is that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was not the most popular person even during his own presidency. I mean, people were no. kind of skeptical a little bit about how much power he was he was wielding during this time. And there's a lot of political cartoons from this time period that basically showcase FDR as king, you know, the king FDR, uh, like abusing, abusing power, ultimately, an abusive president. Very similar to what happened to uh, another Democratic president, and that is the one that started the original democratic party that is andrew jackson that aside that was a side note i started with a side note let's uh let's get right let's get right to it so election of 1932 as we mentioned last week it was pretty much inevitable that franklin delano roosevelt was going to win this election you know yeah, it was it was an slide. yeah it was overwhelming victory captured nearly 23 million uh, votes versus hoover's nearly 16 million um but also besides that in the senate democrats claimed nearly two-thirds majority and in the House, they won almost three-fourths of the seats. Like, this is the greatest victory for a political party since before the Civil War. The American people were clearly fed up with the Republican Party. And this wasn't just Roosevelt. This was just a, a sweep all the way across um, all three branches. Well, two branches, not really three, but at yeah, least... People wanted to change. And they yep. basically said that we gave this, these, we gave the Republican Party at this time enough, enough time, enough chances... That wasn't there. It's not working. So we need to try change, basically. And that's what Roosevelt was selling. He was selling, you know, this new deal. Like, hi, ha- what's going to happen to you? He's like, just put me in power and you'll see what the new deal is going to be. Yep. You know, and that was some of his, and he did, people just, you know, they had hope when he's saying you have nothing to fear but fear itself. That, 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 a lot of people really uh, jumped with that, really went with that ideal. Yep. And he had four months, which is kind of weird at the time, because at the time, it was literally four months since Roosevelt's victory in November uh, until he actually got inaugurated in March 33. This was before the 12th Amendment, which moves the presidential inauguration to January. That was not ratified yet until 33, February 33. So during this time, he kind of creates what historically we know as the brain trust. Roosevelt's major genius was that he didn't pretend or attempt even to try to be good at everything. What he did want to do, however, was find the best people for each particular issue that he had. So this brain trust was, let's bring in, you know, if I have to help farmers, I want to talk to farmers. If I need to help bankers and banks, I need to talk to bankers. 
like he basically brought together this coalition, which was known as the Brain Trust, to kind of formulate his set of policies for his new administration. And the New Deal is actually a term that originates during his campaign speech. So he promised the American people a new deal. Literally, he said there's a new deal for the American people. And that's where it kind of stems from. Um, that's where it basically came from there and all these new you know, programs, which we'll get into. But yeah, I remember too, I, I was reading a lot about this, is that a lot of people did not were very nervous when Roosevelt was going to come in and it actually caused even more of an economic problem a lot of areas because they started doing all these bank runs where people run in and take all their money out of the bank because they were so afraid Roosevelt was going to take the country, was going to end the gold standard. Yeah. So people started taking gold and um, out of the banks or all their money out of the banks and they actually had to declare a bank holiday, basically close the banks until they could restructure banks so people could not even get their money. Yeah. yeah, that's what he did. He had, he had to basically reset the banking system to a certain extent in the United States. Absolutely. And that kind of stems from the New Deal policies, focusing on essentially three major goals. So you have relief for the needy, economic recovery, and financial reform. So relief, recovery, and reform. And this is kind of, from this point forward, right? I feel like it's from this point forward that every presidency is judged based on its first hundred days. Well, this is where that starts. Yeah, with some of these policies like the the um, Harley Act, the Revenue Act of 32, basically he had had enormous amounts of political capital. Um, Pretty much everything he asked for, I think everything he asked for in the first hundred days, Congress granted him. He got like the Federal uh, Deposit Insurance Corporation to basically insure bank accounts. That's huge. That's like the FDIC. When you go into a bank now, you can see like the little um, eagle. It says like this yes. this account was fairly assured up to whatever it is, usually like a hundred thousand dollars. So basically that if that bank goes under, all right, you're the government, as long as the US government exists, you'll get your money. And yep. that's sort of putting that faith back in the in, in the banking system. That's that safety net, right? That's that reform that Roosevelt wants out of those three R's. He wants to have that safety net to kind of make sure that something like this isn't gonna happen again. Yep. That's what they want to avoid. We had this depression, we gotta recover, get out of it, and now we have to make sure it doesn't happen again, reform so it never happens again. Yep. And then during this, you know, the FDIC, right, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, is one of 15 major pieces of New Deal legislation that's passed in just the first 100 days that you mentioned. Um, You know, and again, as you said, his first thing is, you know what, ultimately what happened, the economy shut down. A lot of this has to do with banks. We talked about it last week with regards to giving out bad loans and credit and so on and so forth. So he he does. He literally shuts down all the banks. Um, and then what happens is he persuades Congress to pass the Emergency Banking Relief Act, which basically mm-hmm. authorizes the Treasury Department to inspect all the country's banks. And he goes, look, if you're not sound enough to reopen, you don't exist. So he actually kind of took a lot of banks and consolidated them, like forced them to consolidate. And those that could not open and guarantee were done. To, yeah. yeah, that they keep their money safe for the people. We're done. I mean, he was like, no, you know what? We are resetting the banking system. Um, and he kind of, that's another thing that we should mention right off the bat. He was very open with the American people. And he started this idea of a fireside chat where he would go on an, on radio and he would literally talk to the American people and explain to them in a very particular, but also simple way of what he was doing and why he was doing it. You know, so the banking crisis, which is why, why he started with it, um, he explained during his one fireside chat that the banking crisis was, you know, in large part what caused um, the Great Depression, but that itself was caused by panic. So when too many people demanded their savings in cash, banks would fail. So this was not necessarily because banks were weak, but because even strong banks could not meet such heavy demands. So 
basically his whole thing was over the next few weeks, many Americans, um, you know, would kind of calm down him. a little bit. Yeah, yeah they, they trust they, they him. They actually, deposits went up, outweighed withdrawals. And it, it basically ended the bank uh, crisis. People said, all right, um, they're insured now. Only the good banks are going to open. And they trusted Roosevelt. Remember, this is the first time really a politician, they're hearing his voice weekly. A lot of these cases, he's giving these fireside chats, which are all available online. You can hear actually every single one, yeah. I believe. And these new regulations going in place. Um, and it was basically, they, they, like I said, they trusted him. All right? And they decided, all right, we're going to give this guy a try. And it worked. It was able to at least, the banking, pro, the banking crisis, the solutions, were actually probably one of his biggest successes, especially early on. This is still in those first you know, few months in office. I think that um, while he's regulating the banking, he also kind of starts to step into the finance aspect and regulating just the financial situation in the United States. The FDIC, as we mentioned before, what essentially does is if a bank goes under, the federal government insures your deposit. That's ultimately what it is. So if you have $5,000, at the time, it actually started with $5,000. If you had $5,000 in a bank and a bank foreclosed or shut down or whatever it might be, the United States federal government would give you your $5,000 back. And today, I believe it's actually up to, up to 200 or 200 something thousand. I know it changed under Obama. It went higher. Um, That's per next, account, too. You can obviously per open account. multiple yep. accounts, yeah. And then the second thing is the Federal Securities Act that was passed in May 1933. And what that did is it required corporations to provide complete information on all stock offerings, right? And made them liable for any misrepresentation. So ultimately, companies cannot lie about how well the company's doing, whether they're going to be selling stock, whether they're going to be going public or not going public. The idea is to become as transparent as possible. Um, Also, Congress creates the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, which regulates the stock market. And one goal of this commission was to prevent people from basically having any form of insider information about companies rigging the stock market for their own profit, kind of like what happened to our good old uh, Martha Stewart. didn't Martha Stewart, doesn't she have a show now with Snoop Dogg and it's like a yeah, cooking it's some show? Yeah, sort of show. She's on a whole bunch of shows, yeah. Her and Snoop Dogg are, are good friends. Man, things definitely changed since, since I was in high school. Good for them. Yeah, you wouldn't expect that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Early 90s. Um, now, also, one thing that he does during his first 100 days that we should talk about is uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's like, you know what? Forget prohibition. Like, we need alcohol, sale and manufacture of alcohol, maybe so he could tax them. I mean, that's what, yeah, that's what he wanted. Yeah. It's really what one, I mean, we live in New Jersey, right? Marijuana just became illegal. Uh, gambling's been illegal, has been made legal here for a yep. couple of years now. And just the tax revenue that the state generates because of that is amazing. So it's the same thing. If they, if he saw that, how much money can be made if they just start taxing alcohol, which was freely floating anyway by this point. You weren't stopping yep. people from drinking, right? So yep. yeah, that tax it. And that's why he, he says, let's bring it back. He repeals the amendment. Brings uh, brings back alcohol, and he's also going to be popular doing this too. Yeah, people are going oh, yeah. to appreciate yeah, yeah. the fact that he did that, so it's going to help his popularity as well as help the economy. Yeah, I, I bet you there's a lot of people that toasted FDR the first time they were able to go. Oh, so you can drink it. Well, again, yeah, yeah, not speakeasy. Yeah, <laughs> nuts. So the next thing is helping the American people directly, right? And and he kind of tackles this in various ways. One is just trying to really help. The farmers, as we mentioned last yeah. week, uh, the farmers that were was really a major problem. Major problem. Um, I mean, they had so many crops were just sitting there and just being destroyed. Ultimately, like they they were they weren't selling. So one of the first thing he does is he passes the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Well, actually, he doesn't pass it; he has Congress pass it. But the Agricultural Adjustment Act 
raises crop prices by lowering production. So the government actually achieved this by paying farmers to leave a certain amount of every acre of land unseeded. So they're like, don't use all your land, just like lower production so we could raise the prices of crops. I mean, that was the idea. Another thing is, for example, like uh, the government paid cotton growers $200 million to plow under 10 million acres of their crop. So one thing that came up was that it paid hog farmers to slaughter 6 million pigs. So that way they could lower the, not production, but like how many pigs were there and how much meat was for sale. So you could raise the prices. I thought it was kind of yeah. Crazy. It's basically it's gonna be the, one of the problems with the Great Depression we talked about. There was too much supply, not enough demand. Now they're going to try to correct that. Now they're going to try to drive up prices by increasing the demand by lowering the supply. But you know what's crazy? There's what so saying. many. That was one of the first criticisms I found of FDR doing my research. Yeah, people that, saying, "Well, people are just playing hungry right now. Why are you doing exactly. destroying food and stuff like that?" Which exactly. is still a, something that happens today. That's why I always try to tell my students that the amount of food that the United States destroys every day, like a lot of it gets donated. I'm not saying that, but a lot of food gets really they just burn it, they just destroy it because otherwise, if they if all if all goes to market, it will destroy the price. Yeah. So a lot of food is just destroyed instead of being sold. To, in order to keep the, that fragile supply and demand, that inf- that economic system going. Yeah. Uh, the next thing that kind of always pops up, it's very important. I remember from even studying for a praxis exam where we we're trying to become history teachers, was the TVA. Uh, what do you got about the TVA, Tom? The TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority. Yep. That's what that was, right? Well, that was basically promoting infrastructure, correct? Yep. Things of that nature in all Tennessee Valley, basically getting power, electricity, and things like that to people who didn't have it before. Rail lines, you th- you name it, they were trying to be, almost modernize that part of the country. Yep. Well, that's the thing. It was it was so improvised, um, the Tennessee River Valley, that the idea was like, what can we do? This is definitely like one bird, I mean, two birds, one stone, rather, or yeah. rather like 10 birds, one stone. Because what the Tennessee Valley nothing. Authority did, right, it, it was super ambitious, but it renovated five existing dams and constructed 20 new ones. Uh, obviously creating thousands of jobs. It provided flood control. It provided hydroelectric power to the Tennessee River Valley area. Um, I mean, it was... It, it That's the big thing to think about that here in the 1930s, right? Yep. That people did not have electricity in parts of the country. Is it crazy? Right. But they, just, they didn't have that. So remember, Roosevelt wants this because if you go back to what we talked about before, they get electricity, they get power. Now they have a radio. Now they're going to listen to his fireside chats. They're going to hear him. They're going to hear what he's yeah. saying. So there, he has, there's reasons why, yes, he wants to you know, better their lives. Yes, he you know gives it up to standard of living and stuff like that, provides jobs. But it's also going to allow him now to reach these people directly like he's reaching people in the major cities. Yep, absolutely. He's a, he's a sly dog, that FDR. That FDR. Uh, the next one is one of the most popular ones that came out of the New Deal programs, and that is the CCC. Or the Civilian the- Conservation Corps, right? Yep. And it's funny because my students used to always say civilian conservation corpse. And I'm like, no, 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 core, not corpse. So what was the civilian conservation corps? What this basically did was it um, gave unemployed men age 18 to 25 the opportunity to work with um, the forestry service, right? Planting trees, fighting forest fires, building reservoirs. Um, and it, it becomes very successful. It actually closes down in 1942 for other reasons, right? Yeah. Uh, but how to put over 3 million men. And basically, it allowed men also, you would um, go, you would work, and they would send money back home to your families. Absolutely. Whether you, if you had families yourself or your parents, you'd be able to send money home. That way, a lot of times, what I heard is they would actually pay people to dig holes and they would pay other people to come along later on and fill up the holes. <laughs> That's it crazy. Was a, lot of, a, a lot of it was just 
putting people to work. It was a type of I'm not going to say welfare because they were doing jobs, but a lot yeah, of it was like a beautification committee. I mean, it was like a hardcore yeah, beautification. It was a, I mean, you're getting paid to do this stuff that work that needs to get done in some cases, but it's also work that you're getting paid for uh, honest day's work. And they, they Roosevelt really thought that was important too, that people, you can hand people, you can give money out, but that, that a lot of times people are going to feel less worthy or it's gonna, it might destroy their self-worth. Not everyone, but some people for whatever yeah. reason that America, that rugged individualism that we talked about in the prior podcast with yeah. Hoover, think of that idea. People need to have their pride. That's the thing that Roosevelt really wanted. So this is a job. It is a job. You're getting get paid for it. Well, that's another thing besides getting paid. Like looking at the numbers, right? They would get paid a small wage, about $30 a month. And as you mentioned, actually about $25 was automatically sent home to the worker's family because these are young men. So it's like you're 18. We'll send 25 out of $30 that you make. We'll send it back to your family. But it was important because these people, these were CCC camps. And I was actually just doing research about my hometown um, in New Jersey. And we had a CCC camp near my town. And uh, these camps were very much like, think of them as like a YMCA camp. Uh, you know, a lot of young kids, they would kick you out if you were unruly. Oh, that yeah. That was a big thing. You so had uniforms. Uh, yeah, you you spoke out or didn't do what you were told. That's it. You were done. And, that mean, yep. and then you were letting down your family because they weren't getting money. Yep. Free food. I mean, they had basketball teams. You had different camps going against other camps for playing basketball. It, crazy. One other thing, too, that I should mention is that a lot of those camps were located in the Great Plains where you had the infamous dust ball. And within a period of eight years, the men of the CCC planted more than 200 million trees. Um, this reforestation program was basically aimed at preventing another dust ball. I mean, that's ultimately what it was. But it's just Again, that's part of, the reco- the, part of the reform, right? Right. Screw things up. Let's make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, the CCC in Florida also built the 100-mile overseas highway to like Miami and Key West, which is kind of cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these guys are building. I mean, parks. I mean, think of like the parks that you probably go hiking on. A lot of those trails were probably trails were made, during this, time. made yeah. during this time by the CCC. No, probably they were. Highly likely, yes. Yeah. Ha-ha. All right. So uh, what else we got? We have one that kind of comes up was the... Uh, National Industrial Recovery Act and NIRRA, which was ultimately found unconstitutional. Um, so that's another thing we kind of need to start getting into. Well, as as they go on, they start to get challenged more and more. Yep. And Roosevelt, after that first hundred days, he's kind of there starts to be more challenges to to the um, New Deal because they're seeing that all right, yeah, a lot of the effectiveness was questioned by right and left wing politicians. So he he used a deficit spending to pay for his programs. He abandoned a balanced budget. He abandoned the gold standard, um, yeah. which a lot of politicians said this is going to lead to inflation. Um, so they actually created something known as the American Liberty League, which was created as a business leaders, as an anti-New Deal, yeah. kind of like to oppose a lot of these new deals. And um, this is when you get like senators like Huey Long yeah. and stuff like that. No, and I mean, coming and in think there. about it. I mean, he was basically putting the United States into debt. I mean, it's deficit spending 100%, like 100 miles an hour. Um, yeah, and again, this like, is more power than the federal government ever had. Yes. Oh, yeah. People aren't used to this. Yeah, they're doing a lot, but now the federal government's the fact that the president's talking to you every day through you know through the video and stuff like that, that. That these are things that didn't happen before. Some people liked it. Other people found it very scary. Say, so yeah. why is the federal government getting so much involved in my life? Yeah, the Big Brother aspect, exactly. and that's kind of where you get started getting into the National Industri- Industrial Recovery Act. Um, which had different parts of it. Like one of them was actually the National Recovery Administration. Um, 
with set prices of many products and established standards. And some people are like, wait a second, you can't set prices and establish standards on production line. Like the business should be separate from politics. This idea of laissez-faire, it was trying to NRA or the National Recovery Administration was trying to promote uh, recovery by interrupting the trend of wage cuts, falling prices, layoffs, so on and so forth. But you're ultimately like butting into business and you're butting into individualism, which is kind of un-American. Um, so that starts to be questioned, obviously, as, as we mentioned before. And then besides that, then you have the uh, National Housing Act is created in 34 and the Federal Housing Administration. Uh, which is trying to give loans to home mortgages and repairs. Uh, it's actually still around today, but... The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War One. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. The idea was like, well, who gets it, who doesn't get it? How does the government decide? So as you mentioned, yeah, there's there's a lot of critics of what's happening. And then what happens is like, I would say this is FDR's low moment of his presidency, and that is the court packing scheme. Um, which happens in 1935. So I remember always teaching this when I teach A-Push. Basically, in 1935, the court starts to rule some of these New Deal programs as unconstitutional. Uh, unconstitutional, and he does not like that. No. Well, then he proposed basically, all right, he knows he's not going to sway some of these justices, right? So he's just going to increase the um, the justices from nine to as many as 15. Yep. Basically, his court packing, uh, which he said critics just basically attacked. They're saying, you know, as it's a separation of powers violation, like um, if fact if a new justice, you know, would be added for each sitting judge above 70 who refused to retire. Um, and a lot of FDR fellow Democrats held large majorities in the houses in Congress. Um, they also balked at supporting this agenda. Right. Yeah. No. And, so. and this is kind of seen as like, all right, dude, now you're now you're now, now you're fears. overstepping your bounds a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And maybe the fears of too big of a government are actually coming to fruition here. Maybe you really should be afraid of something. And what really got him to do it is when the Supreme Court struck down the um, Agriculture Adjustment Act on the grounds that agriculture is a local matter and it should be regulated by states and not the federal government. He's like, come on. So when he asked Congress to enact this court reform bill to add more justices, that's when people are like, "All right, listen, you're just you're trying to pack the Supreme Court." And but he didn't. He didn't. I mean, he didn't get up to fifteen, but he won that war there because the Supreme Court never again after that um, invalidated a piece of his New Deal legislation. And there's other there's a lot of like you know controversial ones that come after this in the Second New Deal. And by the time of his death, seven of the nine justices were appointed by Roosevelt himself, which is nuts. Well, he was he was so, there for a while. <laughs> exactly, but I mean, he did. You know, he, he didn't have to increase the number because he wound up getting new justices that pretty much were on his side anyway. Yeah. I mean, you have a, you have a few critics of his. Uh, besides the American Liberty League you mentioned, there was the um, Huey Long, right? And then um, Charles, what's the father? Charles Coughlin? Far, uh, Coughlin, yeah. Coughlin. A uh, Catholic priest in, in Detroit. Detroit, yep. They said that he had like a radio audience, as many as like 45 million people, and he would just bash FDR. But then he was also super anti-Semitic, and that kind of cost him his support ultimately. So you kind of just briefly mentioned this. Um, a lot of people don't realize that there was no just New Deal. There was the first New Deal and the second New Deal. Yeah. Um, so the first New Deal, the obviously. Fir- yeah. 
Go ahead. The first one there was more of trying to try and like fix the get the economy back running right, fix the things that were broken. The second New Deal in 35 was more of a series of programs to kind of speed up the recovery process and also to provide economic security to every American. And he really hoped yep. this would also increase his chances of being reelected in 36. Because, you know, that could have happened. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and he does change some things. I mean, first of all, he does bring back the Agriculture um, <laughs> Adjustment Act, right? He changes it a little bit, but he does bring it back. Um, he also creates the Farm Security Administration, which loans $1 billion to help tenant farmers uh, become landholders. Um, that was kind of helpful because a lot of these people that worked on these farms couldn't afford to own them. They were basically in this bad loop, specifically African-Americans, in this bad loop of of really never going ahead in, in life. And this give $1 billion to help these tenant farmers become land landholders. Um, it established camps for migrant farm workers who had traditionally lived in like these little huts. Again, a little better. But I think the most popular and the most known um, New Deal program from the second New Deal, and actually probably encompassing even both of them, was the WPA or the Works Progress Administration. Well, again, I don't know if this, I don't know if I would, I would disagree with you a little bit about being the most well known, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, well, I guess we're going to these work programs. <laughs> oh, you're, bro, gonna... you're, blowing our, you're blowing our spot here, Pete. You're gonna social, well, you were going to say Social Security, weren't you? Yeah, of course. Come on. Well, who knows that no Social Security? Yeah, social, but you know what? The WPA, come on. Like, hey, you, you take a poll, see who knows Social Security, see who knows WPA. No, you win. You're right. You win. Right. 100%. So, yeah, I mean, it was a federal agency, right? Um, it spent $11 billion over several years creating jobs for workers. Um, it was controversial because it did offer a lot of money to artists and musicians yes. and theater people, writers. So people were like, wait a minute, there's people out you're giving money for people to paint murals and stuff like that. But Roosevelt thought this was important, that the arts was um, really important. And it's controversial because a lot of people say the government shouldn't be giving money for these, these things. I mean, actors, plays. plays. Yeah, actors, plays. That the government shouldn't be supporting. Not that it's wrong, but like the government, the money shouldn't be coming from the government. Yeah. In, that, in that regard. And this is something that's kind of, you know, that's one reason why a lot of times when budgets have to get cut, the arts get cut first and stuff like that because it's such a controversial topic. It's so to, unfortunate in the school systems. It's so unfortunate. It really is. Um, even today. But I mean, you're right. The, the whole point of the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, was to create as many jobs as possible, as quickly as possible. So just, get people, like just get people anything. to work. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, you, you do archery? Okay, we'll pay you to teach other people how to, like, you know, shoot from a bow. Um, you basically just can apply for anything, yeah. Yep. I want you. You want to paint this side of the building? Okay, here. Here's two hundred bucks. Go paint it. Exactly. Between 1935 and 1943, it spent 11 billion dollars to give jobs to more than eight million workers, and most of these were unskilled workers. Like this was just like you said, like just random things just to give them work. However, these workers, these so-called unskilled workers, built 850 airports throughout the country during that time. Constructed or repaired 651,000 miles of roads and streets and put up more than 125 public buildings. Um, I mean, they wrote WPA. I actually found this also in my local museum in my town. Uh, would go around, hire historians and professionals to write guides and histories of cities. Um, like, I actually found the whole history of my town written by WPA workers. It's kind of so, it's, I think it's kind of awesome. They also collected historical slave narratives. They went out into the South yeah. and started collecting, you know, firsthand narratives from a lot of former slaves, which would normally be lost. So it was about history. It was about the arts. It was about, you know, anything. You know, the idea was to just your job. If you have a skill, 
it is important and it deserves. Yeah, you're gonna get paid for that. Pay for that skill and share that skill with others. Absolutely. Yep. And Elnor Roosevelt still not as big as still not as big as Social Security. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. right. That's why. I know you're right. I know. Say it Um, again. Say it again. Say it again. (laughs) No, I'm not saying. No, Social Security is a big deal. I know. I know. I kind of got ahead of myself, but the WPA is pretty big. Uh, If you ever go on the Golden uh, Gate Bridge that was built by the WPA, if you ever go and look at Mount Rushmore, funds for that WPA. I mean, that was built the high treasure. I just watched National Treasure too. <laughs> so that's why Mount Rushmore was actually built. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. But yeah, so crazy stuff. But anyway, all right, Tom. All right. So the one other one that happened during the second New Deal, which is truly the biggest one of them all, although it's been changed so many times since then. It's different. It's much different. It's different from it was originally put in place. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the Social Security Act. All right, passed in 1935. Well, it's exactly what well, people know what it is today. And it was controversial at the time. And I don't think it's as controversial now, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that people say get rid of Social Security. Someone tries to argue it now that, that their political That's like political done. suicide. I feel like no yeah, matter that, if you're Republican yeah. or Democrat, you don't say yeah. get rid of Social Security. Well, that's just part of the whole like graying of America and stuff like that, which is a whole other you know, topic. Podcast. Um, uh-huh. You know, another podcast, yeah. But um, <laughs> the whole idea with Social Security is that um, it's – a old age insurance, right? That these programs are going to put in place where money was going to be, in this case, Roosevelt's going to be, it's going to be a payroll tax, right? Money's going to be taken out of the workers who are working and it's going to go into a retirement fund for workers or people who are handicapped or um, ch- needy children and families without a father present. That was something that was put in place. And it's going to be going there because it's basically a moral and political right to collect these pensions, uh, unemployment benefits, and it's going to give money to workers when they retire. Also, is to get older, maybe not as qualified workers out of the workforce, not as safe workers to get them out of the workforce. Uh, you can stay home now and still collect money. It's basically a go- government-sponsored pension almost, right? Yep. That's ultimately what it was. And, and it's just something that I always tell my, my students that when you get when you get a job and it's start taking money out for Social Security, uh, that money's not being used for you. It's not like they're putting in no. an account that you'll use. No, that's going into this pot that you have people taken out of that pot today. Like, will you put into Social Security today? The people that are above 65 are using it today. today it's like exactly. this one communal thing. And the issue is that, um, you know, they're well, saying yeah. that by the time we become old enough, there'll be no Social Security because well, yeah. ultimately, just there's, first of all, the baby boomers. They're, they're well, that's what it is. It's when the baby boomers retire. There's just going to be more people taking money out of the pot, like you said, than putting yeah. money into the pot. And that's what's yeah. going to happen with the birth rates going down and with the... Um, and that's what I was going to say. The birth rates are most definitely also but going down. It's mostly with the baby boomers now. That's basically what it's doing. The baby one, as baby boomers are retiring, baby boomers, in, just in case people... Okay, are our parents confused. are not going to like us after they hear this. We need to calm down with the baby boomer talk. Yeah. Well, that's what they... I, I was called a boomer <laughs> the other day. and I, I, didn't, I wasn't really sure what they called me. I'm like, I'm not a boomer, but I guess maybe <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not a baby. 30s. Yeah, I'm, I'm not... I'm a, not a baby boomer. And they're like, what? And I had to explain what a baby boomer was. I'm like, all right, this is just not working. Um, <laughs> I'm like, it's June. Just, just, yeah, that's done. But um, basically the generations that were born after World War II, when the soldiers came home, they decided to start families and everything like that. 
down that generation, born in the mid fifties, the sixties, and so forth. Well, it's the largest uh, generation in the United States right now, yes, yes, population wise. Yes, yeah. And that's yeah, exactly. and the, well, the problem is that the age group of those that should be paying into social security. I'm not getting political at all, but it is it is getting smaller because people are not having as big families as they once did. So yeah, and also people are living longer. That, that was a exactly. big thing too. So there, it's not just the baby boomers. Just so that way, you know. No, it's not there. just, but it's a major major cause. Yes. Major. So uh, the other thing was aid to families with dependent children. That was part of the Social Security Act. And that was actually altered eventually by Nixon, I want to say. Was it Johnson or yeah. Nixon? That, because Nixon. the idea was that you would get a benefit through Social Security. Initially, the way it started is um, that if the main breadwinner of the household could not work and or passed away, the mom and the child would receive money. And then it was changed that the in, the person no longer had to be the main breadwinner if it was if you were in a single household, but it had to be a spouse. And then it was ultimately in the seventies changed to you would receive government aid if you were a single mother. So that alters it from you no longer had to be married in order to receive that aid. So so the the law itself has definitely evolved, and the aspects of that law have definitely evolved over the years. So, yeah, they changed so, the year. They changed when you could retire to benefits. They always, it's obviously yeah. changed a lot. Yeah. Yep. So I think I, I want to kind of touch upon the fact of like, what did this New Deal program do? Ultimately, you know, how fair was this New Deal program? And, and obviously, it wasn't all that fair. No. So, no, no, I was trying to say like, First of all, FDR kind of failed to support the civil rights. And, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that he didn't want to upset the Democratic voters in the South because they made up a big segment of his supporters. So he if he refused to approve um, you know, major things that the NWACP was really fighting for at the time, uh, including the federal anti-lynching law, which someone proposed that he should propose that, and he didn't want to back that. He didn't want to end the poll tax, um, which is another major goal of the civil rights movement. And a number of these New Deal agencies clearly discriminate against African-Americans. So the NRA, oh, the doubt. CCC, and the TVA, uh, when it came to employment, um, these programs gave much lower wages to African-Americans, favor of whites, and kept all of the white and black workers segregated at all times um, while they were building these dams and so on and so forth. Um, there's also, nonetheless, like we should mention, that African-Americans, for the most part, did support Roosevelt. And this is really the shift where you had African-Americans shift from Republicans, supporting Republicans, to supporting Democrats. A lot of uh, people forget that Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. And Abraham Lincoln had great support from the African-American community um, for obvious reasons at the time. But this is the shift of that. It, it was President Roosevelt is who kind of shifted that you know, mentality almost that African-Americans now would not always go for the Republican. And in this case, regardless of the fact that a new programs are not always fair um, to African-Americans, they did at least go out and create jobs for African-Americans as well as whites, which is something that did not happen prior to the Great Depression. Well, well I think one thing like, with Social Security and everything that, I mean, there's a ton of programs, right? This whole thing is basically known as alphabet soup. So yeah. we're not going to go through all these little programs. But I think something... Um, that we can, that's important to discuss as we're kind of like winding in down here, I guess, right? Yeah. Would be that Roosevelt, like, 
the argument is he he was a social revolutionary. Maybe he wasn't. Other people call him like a um, dictator, right? Con- some some conservative critics charge him that he was um, a lot of more liberals say that he wasn't. He was a full blown corporate stooge, right? A lot of leftists say that, and like a lot of people kind of struggle to wrap their heads around the notion that pol- uh, the politicians they don't agree with aren't the devils, right? That that yeah. the other side might say they are type of thing, and that's kind of like Roosevelt is a, is a good example of that. And when we have to understand is that. In the 30s, there was real totalitarian governments you know, going on in the world, right? You have that. And the last thing Roosevelt wanted to do was see the America go down that path. He even says, you know, if I can't fix this form of government, right, there's not going to be an American government because he knows that we're going to end up with like a dictator or something different. So yeah. Roosevelt thought that if he failed to try anything constructive to revitalize the economy, you, the U.S. might go down with them. And he called for some government interventions, right? At first, very moderate with the first New Deal. By American standards, these are just by American standards, right? Then a bit more radical by American standards with the second New Deal, Social Security, welfare, things like that, which, you know, are basically socialist programs. Yep. And he wanted to start as small with that because he knew he had to do something that something really changed things. And even with all of this, the Great Depression was not was not done. That's another thing that I, I stress with the students is that the New Deal helps, but it doesn't get rid of the Great Depression. Nope. The Great Depression is still there. And then in the 30s, and in the four, in the early forties, and actually, it actually, when you study and look at the graphs and the economy at the time towards the end of um, the nineteen thirties, you could see that the New Deal is actually failing. Um, yeah, specifically in thirty seven. So there's another recession in thirty seven, thirty eight, which kind of hits hard, and people were did not expecting that because it showed that okay, the New Deal. It's not working. But then within a year, we didn't have to worry about it because, you know, in September 39, Germany attacks Poland. The United States starts producing war goods for our allied yeah. nations. But And that really starts. And the Great Depression really ends after that first bomb hits Pearl Harbor in 41. Yeah. But a number of unemployment actually increases um, in 1937, right, from 7.7 mm-hmm. million to 10.4 million in 1938. So unemployment's growing by millions um, in 38, you know, the, the New Deal is failing. Um, the deficit rises to 2.9 million by 38. Um, it's ultimately, the, like you said, the massive spending uh, that brings us out. You know, during World War you II, the deficit reaches the high of about $54.5 billion in 43. Because we are producing guns, tanks, ships, airplanes. You know, that's what really brings us out. And everyone's, everyone's employed because everyone is working for the war effort. It's a total war. Yeah, which is something we haven't had since then. So it's that's a whole other can of worms, or whatever you want to call it. But um, yeah, so that's what I already stressed. The New Deal helped, but whether or not it was actually got the country out of the Great Depression is a huge. Well, I didn't right. The World War Two yeah. is what actually got the country out of the Great Depression, and so something that kind of the narrative. I don't know if the narrative in history changed. You kind of say, oh, no, the New Deal did save it. I don't know where that shift would that shift happen. You know. When that started being just like the common assumption or just agreed upon, oh yeah, the New Deal. Roosevelt became president. He put in the New Deal all these programs, alphabet soup, Social Security, right? But what the, I would say the biggest thing, the biggest lasting, um, some of the biggest lasting things from the New Deal is the fact that the government now is involved in people's everyday lives. Yeah, right. The federal government got bigger during this time, and it's continued to get bigger. And some people really appreciate that. Some people like that, and other people say. That's the scary part. Yep. I mean, many conservatives at the time, you know, and even today believe that President Roosevelt's policies made the federal government way too large and too powerful. Yeah. Uh, and the major thing is they believe that the 
um, government stifled any free enterprise and individual initiative. Like that was the big key, key thing. But at the same time, the liberal critics of President Roosevelt, because there were some, I uh, thought that he didn't do enough to socialize yes. the economy and more importantly, to eliminate Especially social and economic inequalities. Yeah, any minority. That's, that's probably the biggest liberal knock on Roosevelt is that he did not do enough with, with um, minorities. And yep. he didn't. Like you can, you can just he look, didn't. he didn't. Yep. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter what reason you want to give, he didn't. So. Yep. So, you know, for better or for worse, it definitely set a brand new, a completely new blueprint of what we expect from our federal government and even state government as well. It wasn't just federal government oh, yeah. because yeah. even during this time, the federal aid to states increased from $217 million in 1932 to $2 billion in 1935. So you have all these states or receive, state governments are receiving funds and now they have their own relief spending, you know, to provide new services. So it's like the state governments become kind of dependent on federal government and the federal government is, as well as the state government, kind of really becomes really involved in people's lives. I mean, it is what it is, right? So I guess the big question is, because we kind of brought that up, that the New Deal didn't really bring the nation out of the Depression. It didn't. So, like, would we say, like, it it was a failure? I mean... I would say it was definitely a step that... It it helped a lot of people, right? So if if your family got money and your family put food on the table because of one of these programs, then you're going to support the you're going to support the new deal. So did it help people? Absolutely. So in that regard, you can say that it was a success for people individually, as a nation as a whole. To pull it out, it 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 didn't it didn't work. It set some groundworks that probably did help. It provided a relief, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It provided a lot of the re, um, some of the recovery in certain parts of the country more than others, yeah. but not for everybody. And it did put in some reforms to prevent a total drop like that happening again. With like the FDIC, I think th- things like that were important. Oh yeah, we still. Have, I mean, think about it. In the banking, yeah, they're still there. Today. Yeah, in the banking, we still have Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, we still have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Uh, when it talks to talking about protecting workers' rights, the National Labor Relations Board uh, was created under Wagner Act, which basically continues to act as a ma- mediator in labor disputes, right, between unions and employers. Which is huge. Which is huge. That's still around today. Yeah. We still have the Social Security still around today. Uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, when it comes to the environment, I mean, the Tennessee Valley Authority kind of really harnessed power, so much water power to generate electricity, which is still ultimately a blueprint for that area. So ultimately, the legacy of the New Deal is some of these programs most definitely endured and for the right reasons. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. If they're still around today, almost 100 years later. Yeah. Crazy. Well... You know, it's crazy. I keep on thinking like every time I teach US2, I'm like, oh, I love teaching US2 because it's so much more modern. But like it's getting further and further away from modern. Yeah. You know, like you don't think about that. Some some uh, schools actually have US3 curriculum. Yeah, or yeah, like a modern America. Yeah. Kind of uh, interesting stuff. But anyway, so this is the end of our, I guess, second parter on the Great Depression. We don't have a third part on the Great Depression. This is pretty much it. Um, <laughs> I guess if we continued this chronologically, we would get into uh, Pearl Harbor, but been there, done that already. Um, let's go back and listen to it. Yeah, that's right. But I guess that's it. So um, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in again. We appreciate it. If you ever need anything or if you need to contact us, you could find us at historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. We are always there. So that's it.
Enjoy, everyone. Till next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.